My name is John Grabiel. You're stuck with me this morning because Jerry is in California furthering his education. And so here we are. I'm the director of student ministries here at ZPC. And so typically week in and week out, I'm with our middle school students and our high school students. I'm with our middle school students on Sunday morning at 9, and I'm with our high school students on Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. And so while we're here and while we're talking about students just a bit, I'm going to uh, shamelessly plug our student ministries pro program. We have some amazing students in this community. And if you're not a parent, not a family member, not a friend of one of these students, or you don't know any of them, I would encourage you to reach out, find one of the students in this community, and get to know them. Because you'll be better for it. I promise. And while we're there, we could use you in student ministries. We could use you as a small group leader, as somebody who just comes and hangs out with us during our weekly programming. P.S. We usually have food there, so that's enticing enough, right? Or maybe you could be the somebody who brings us the food. That would be fantastic. For the past two years on Sunday nights, when the high school group meets from 6 to 6.30, we, we share a meal, and we hang out, and we have fun, and we play games. Those meals have been covered by parents, by grandparents, by home groups, and it's been great to see you guys come in and to love our students well. And so if volunteering with student ministries is something that sounds enticing to you, I know it sounds a little daunting probably, but if it sounds enticing to you, come and talk to me. Talk to me after the service, call me, email me this week, because I guarantee you we have a spot for you. Now, earlier this spring, uh, we started a series on Sunday night with the high school group called You Asked For It. Basically, I gave the students a note card and, and said, on that note card, I want you to answer the question, if you could ask God anything you wanted, what would you ask? If you could ask any question of the Bible, what would you ask? And the result was a stack of note cards with some really, really great questions. Questions about what sets Christianity apart from other religions. Questions about pain and suffering. Questions about heaven and hell. Questions about the reliability of the Bible. Questions about identity questions about self-worth. And as I thought through what to talk about this morning, some of these cards came to mind because we obviously couldn't get to all of them in the series. And there was one card in particular that weighed heavy on me. We have a picture of it. And it was one of the cards that we didn't get to. And I thought, you know what? This is probably a good thing for us to talk about as a church family. The card said this, I've grown up at ZPC and have been told God is love and God loves everyone. If that's true, why do I feel so unlovable? It weighed heavy on me because it means that we have students in our community that feel like they're not able to be loved. And if we have students in our community that feel that, I would be willing to bet that we have adults in this community that feel that. And so it's with that question in mind that we look at our text this morning, and it comes out of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And so if you have your Bible, you can grab that. If you have the app on your phone, the Bible app, you can follow along there or to be on the screens as well. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And real quick, before we jump into the text, we're going to talk about things like love this morning, how we should love, who we should love. And those are things that we talk about often in this place. But there's one thing I want you to hear this morning that's maybe a little bit different. If you have your bulletin, grab it, grab a pen and write this down. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. What we teach you to know when you come in here on a Sunday morning, what we teach you to know is never more important than who we teach you to love. What we teach you to know is never more important 
than who we teach you to love. Because we talk and we teach a lot, but if we don't do anything, it doesn't much matter. So here we go, John chapter 8. We're actually going to pick up at the the end of John chapter 7 just because of the way the break is. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, real quick before we jump into things, and I'm not going to talk about this very long because it's not the point of the morning, but this story in John chapter 8 actually has its own story. If you have your own Bible and you were following along, you might have noticed that it's got brackets around it, and that might draw your attention and say, why does it have brackets around it, right? Well, the reason it has brackets around it, or it might be a footnote in your Bible, is because in the oldest manuscripts of John, it's just not there. We don't have it. And when it does show up centuries after John's gospel, the translators and scholars had a hard time placing it. And so sometimes they placed it at the end of John, kind of as an appendage. Sometimes they placed it in Luke because the writing and the words that were used were very Luke-like. And so it's kind of been this homeless, wandering story that's found its way into our Bible. And I believe that the reason it's persevered and the reason that it's found its way into our Bible is because it was handed down from generation to generation from mothers to sons and fathers to daughters and grandparents to grandchildren. And the story is so true to what we know about Jesus, his life and his character. If you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that this story fits perfectly with what we know about Jesus. And I would say regardless of how this story came to us, I'm glad that it did because it's one of those stories that we often put ourselves into. We read the story and say, well, I can relate. I can put myself in the shoes of those self-righteous people who drag people out into the streets. I recognize that I judge sometimes. Or maybe you put yourself in the position of the woman. You've been dragged out into the street at some point and accused and exposed and shamed. But how often do we find ourselves being the one that reaches down to help someone else How often do we find ourselves loving those around us that are difficult to love or loving those around us that are ashamed of who they are? That's the place that we need to be. That's the kind of follower that we're called to be. That's the kind of church we should be, the kind that rushes in with love in the midst of being unloved. Now, I once had a dog named Indy. 
We have a picture of Indy and Emma. This is Indy. I got Indy when he was six weeks old from the Humane Society in Louisville, Kentucky. You might think, why did you name him Indy if you got him in Louisville? Well, I just graduated from college, and I was getting ready to start at a church here in Indianapolis. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to have a new job, I'm going to have a new dog, and I'm going to call him Indy. And so this is Indy. When Indy was six weeks old and I, I picked him up from the Humane Society, he fit right in the center console of my 1997 Honda Civic. In between the front two seats, he just fit like a nice, neat little ball. Now, obviously, he didn't stay that size. He grew up about 85 pounds of dog. And I'll say this about Indy. Indy was a good, good dog. Indy was a lovable dog. Indy would listen when you needed him to listen. He didn't push too much. He didn't beg too much. He let Emma crawl all over him when she was a baby. Indy was easy to love. In fact, uh, we had to put Indy down when he was nine years old, which was much too young for my liking. In fact, this picture was taken um, the day before we had to put him down. And so Emma and I loaded him up in the car. We stopped at McDonald's and got him a cheeseburger. And then we went to the park and just hung out for the day. Indy was a good, good dog. Now, we fast forward six months, and I came across this guy. This is Wrigley. This is our current dog. Now, if there's any question as to why we got Wrigley, I gave, did you the favor of putting them side by side. This is Indy, and this is Wrigley. <clears throat> we saw Wrigley and thought, we have to get him because he looks just like Indy. And surely, if he looks like Indy, he'll be like Indy. He is not. <clears throat> looks are deceiving. Emma and I often wonder if Wrigley is even capable of possessing that lovable quality that was so an innate part of who Indy was. Where Indy was easy to love, Wrigley is often difficult to love. Wrigley rarely listens when you need him to. He's right there when it's time for dinner. If you leave your food unwatched for the least little bit of time, it will be gone. He will eat it. One Easter, Emma and I had dyed and decorated a dozen hard-boiled eggs. And we put those hard-boiled eggs in a bowl, and we put that bowl in the center of the table and went upstairs to get ready for bed. In the five minutes it took us to get ready for bed, we came back downstairs to an empty bowl. No shells, no eggs, all gone, and one very, very happy dog. Where Indy was easy to love, Wrigley is often difficult to love. And I know it sounds like I'm down on Wrigley, and I am. <laughs> but we do love him in spite of his challenges. Like Wrigley, I think we all at times are difficult to love. And we don't even know it. How often are we stubborn and proud and boastful and unkind and all the while we think we're the greatest thing that ever was when in reality we're difficult to love. And I think there's the flip side of that. That flip side of being oblivious to the fact that we're hard to love which is more along the lines of what this student is asking. A place where we find ourselves feeling unlovable. A place where we find ourselves playing hurtful words on a loop over and over 
and over again. Words like, you're no good, you're ugly, nobody wants you. And those hurtful words, they cut deep. And as we replay them over and over again, something begins to happen. We begin to believe those words. And that puts us in a place of shame. And shame is an extremely powerful thing. It's so powerful that it can drive you to believe that you're not only unworthy and incapable of being loved, but that you have no control over it. That nothing you can do will add up. That you'll never be worth it. Shame reminds us that we're in the wrong and that nothing we will do will add up. Shame is that stabbing, painful feeling that we're unworthy of love, and it begins to eat at our souls, doesn't it? It begins to change who we are, and it leaves us with our greatest fear, is, and that greatest fear is that we're not good enough. Author Michelle Graham says it this way, Shame says that because I am flawed, I am unacceptable. Grace says that though I am flawed, I am cherished. Shame says that because I'm flawed, I'm unacceptable. Grace says that though I am flawed, I am cherished. And I imagine this woman in our story, this woman being dragged out into the street. I imagine she felt shame. I assume she was half-dressed. She was embarrassed. And all she wanted in the whole world was to curl up in a ball and to disappear, to make all this go away. But like I said, shame keeps eating at us. It keeps tearing and breaking and wounding until, at least in her case, Jesus comes along and begins writing in the dirt. I love this image. Jesus, fully God and fully man, stoops down, John says, and begins to write in the dirt, just to drag his finger through the dirt. And I can only imagine that he's reminding himself of where we came from. Because if you remember, and you go back to Genesis, God came down and grabbed a handful of dirt and created us. And so Jesus is writing in the dirt and reminding himself of where we came from. And because we've come from the earth, we do earthly things. But he created us out of dust. This woman, he created unique, created beautiful. And now that creator is stooped down on the ground beside her, and this woman is reminded that she is loved. And even more importantly, she's reminded that shame has no place in the midst of true grace. Shame has no place in the midst of true grace. She's reminded that she is cherished. As often as I've studied this book, I would say sometimes you could maybe sum it down into about ten words. God made everybody. God died for everybody, God loves everybody. And I know that's simplified, but it's true. Jerry often gives us homework, and so I thought, you know what, I'm not going to let you guys off this week. And so I want to encourage you, sometime this week, I want you to just jot down A through Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, all the way down to Z. Write it down. And what I want you to do is think of the people and the places and the things that God loves that start with that letter. So you start with A. Who does God love? Whatever comes to mind. All the way down to Z. I came across this exercise in Vince Ananucci's book, God for the Rest of Us. 
And so this past week, I thought I'd give it my best shot, and here's what I came up with, okay? So you ready? Are you ready? Okay, A, God loves ambulance drivers, accordion players, airplane pilots, artists, astronauts, acrobats, the Amish, Anglicans, astrologers, adulterers, atheists, and addicts. God loves babies, Bible readers, Baptists, and boy bands, blondes, and brunettes, and women of a certain age with blue hair. He he loves the bully and the bullied, the brave, the bossy, the bitter, the beat up, and the burned out. God loves Canadians, Cambodians, Cubans, and Mark Cuban. He loves congressmen, crooks, cheaters, crystal meth makers, and as hard as this is for me to admit, and I still question this one from time to time, but God loves cat lovers. (laughs) It's hard for me to put in there, but it's true. But most of all, God loves the Chicago Cubs. God loves dads. Dairy farmers, deadbeats, drag queens, disc golfers, and disc jockeys, and Duke Ellington. God loves Elvis impersonators, evolutionists, and Eminem. God loves the faithful and the faithless, the fearful and the fearless. He loves people from Finland and France and Fiji, and people who think that Philippines starts with an F. (laughs) He loves good people and grateful people, and generous and greedy people, glamorous and grouchy people, goofy people and gullible people. He even loves people who collect garden gnomes. He loves homosexuals and people who are homophobic and all the homo sapiens in between. God loves people from India and Indiana, introverted and intense people. He even loves IRS auditors. God loves late-night talk show hosts named Jimmy, Fallon, or Kimmel. He loves singers named Justin, Timberlake, or Bieber. God loves Chloe, Courtney, Kim, and Kanye, and has a special place in his heart for people from Kentucky. God loves people in Laos and people who feel lousy about themselves. He loves librarians and landscapers, lawyers, and ladies who pack lunchboxes. God loves ministers, missionaries, Mennonites, and Methodists. He loves people who are malicious, meticulous, and mischievous. He loves people who collect marbles and people who've lost their marbles. He loves Madonna and Miley and Marilyn Manson. God loves Nick Jonas and Nick Cannon and Nick Saban. Roll Tide, right? Nick Lachey, Nick Nolte, Nicholas Cage, Nicole Kidman, and Nicki Minaj. God loves obstetricians, orthodontists, optometrists, and ophthalmologists. God loves preachers and pimps, pornographers and prostitutes, pill poppers and pedophiles, and the police that have to deal with them. God loves the Queen of England, members of the band Queen, and Queen Latifah. God loves the people of Russia and Rwanda. He loves real estate agents and the factory workers that put rainbow-colored marshmallows in my lucky charms. God bless them especially. He loves the people that live in South Africa, South Dakota, South Carolina, and even the south side of Chicago. He loves smokers, strippers, and saints. God loves Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Tom Jones, Tommy Lee Jones, Tom Petty, and even Tom Brady. God loves the people of Ukraine and Uruguay, the United States and the United Kingdom. He loves used car salesmen, umpires, and the unemployed. God loves vegetarians in Virginia and vegans in Vietnam. 
God loves Will Ferrell, Will Smith, and William Shatner. He loves the waitress at the Waffle House and women who weigh you in at Weight Watchers. God loves x-ray techs, people who have an affinity for the xylophone, and all the students at Xavier University. That's about as creative as I could get with X. You do what you can. Why? God loves you. Why? Oh, you. God loves tall you, short you, old you, young you, employed you and unemployed you, popular you and outcast you. He loves happy you, sad you, content you, confused you. And my favorite part is that this book doesn't just say that he loves you, it says that he so loves you. And last but not least, God loves zookeepers and those who are prepping for the zombie apocalypse. That's all I've got. God loves you. And because God loves you, because God loves me, we have a responsibility, don't we? That responsibility is to love one another. A little bit later in John, John chapter 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And what he has to say to his disciples is just as much true today as it was then 2,000 years ago. Jesus says to his disciples, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by our love, everyone may know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. And so for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we should be known by the quantity and the quality of our love, not our absence or our judgment or our shame. How do we love one another well? Paul talks about it in his letters. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says to sit with each other, in joy and in pain, carry each other's burdens. When we have a friend who's going through divorce or filing for bankruptcy or their kids are depressed or they're wrestling with addiction, we are or should be the first people who rush in to help. We can't continue to expect that someone else will take care of it for us. We can't continue to expect that someone else will run in and offer help because it's when we expect someone else to do it that no one ends up doing it at all. If the woman in our text this morning had been dragged into the street and Jesus saw it and Jesus expected someone else to take care of it, if Jesus had expected someone else to rush in and offer grace, she would have been stoned. She would have been killed because a bunch of proud, self-righteous teachers wanted to prove a point. If we expect someone else to step in and help, it's likely to just not happen at all. And doing nothing leaves people feeling unloved, feeling unlovable, feeling shamed, and it leaves a student reaching out, wondering where love will come from for them. Do any of you guys remember Paul Hervey? Yeah? I have fond memories of Paul Harvey um, um, because my grandfather would listen to the radio and uh, it never failed. Paul Harvey would come on and I loved his voice and Paul Harvey always had this little thing and he would say, and now the story, right? And now the rest of the story. And he would always end and say, this is Paul Harvey. Good day, right? I have fond memories of my grandfather listening to Paul Harvey. I remember Paul Harvey saying this one time. Instead of being fishers of men, Christians have become keepers of the aquarium. Instead of being fishers of men, Christians have become keepers of the aquarium. And I think sometimes he's right. Sometimes we have a tendency to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to pain around us. 
because it's just easier to do that. But to that, I would say not for us, not for ZPC, not in this church. Because my hope and my prayer is that we will never be insulated or isolated from those that are in pain around us, from those that feel unloved, for the pain of our students and our families and our friends and the people of central Indiana. If you don't hear anything else this morning, it's what I had you write down at the beginning. What we teach you to know is never more important than who we teach you to love. Because we talk a lot about love. We talk about love with, a lot of, with regularity, for sure, in this place. We look at the Bible and we see Jesus loving those that are often difficult to love, loving the unlovable. We look at Acts and how the early church loved each other and shared with one another. We look at, at God who loved us so much that he gave his son. We talk about these stories we read these stories, we teach these stories, we study these stories. But guys, what we teach you to know is never more important than who we teach you to love. One of the things that we do as a church family to show how we will love and enter into a covenant to show that we will love is baptism. And so this morning, Scott and the Hawk family are going to come forward and we're going to show some love to this family. Amen.